Hey everybody, our board slash OITE podcast companion book is now available for you to follow along and take notes with our podcast review. Just click the link in the description. This episode is sponsored by the American Academy of Orthopedic Surgeons. Have you heard about the Resident Orthopedic Core Knowledge Program? The American Academy of Orthopedic Surgeons has partnered with leading experts in the field to bring you ROCK, the online learning platform developed for U.S. residency programs. Free to residents, ROCK empowers you to build a foundation to prepare you for the OITE and ABOS Part 1 exam. And remember, access to the ROCK content is free for residents. Get started at rock.aaos.org. Hello, everybody, and welcome back to yet another episode of the Nailed It Ortho podcast. You are tuned into our OITE slash our board series review featuring myself, Dr. Cole, and Spencer Woolwine. And today we are continuing, well, we're really finishing up knee and we're getting into hip. So uh, let's go ahead and uh, hop into it. I hope you guys subscribe and be on the lookout. The review companion book is coming out soon. So uh, be on the lookout for that. All right. Until next time. You are now listening to Nailed It, the orthopedic surgery podcast featuring doctors Jay Fitz and Wendell Cole. All right. Hello, hello everybody. Welcome back to yet another episode of the uh, Nailed It Ortho podcast. Uh, myself and Dr. Woolwine here. We are continuing on with some adult reconstruction we have talked about a lot of things uh this far dude it's been over like a year man like <laughs> at first we we're like oh yeah we'll be through orthopedics in six months <laughs> <laughs> yeah that was uh that was us being extremely naive i guess and but we are uh cl- closer to the end i think i've just just like three more sections i think we have yeah. hand peds and onk you know, yeah, exactly. I'll be all bored though. Like, man, but uh, we're just finishing up a little bit of knee now, and then and then hopping into some hip. Um, I guess we'll just go ahead and get it started. So, what is spunk? S P O N K, all, all caps. What is what is that when we're talking about like, you know, knees and um, yeah, I mean, yeah. What's what is spunk? Yeah, you'll hear uh, probably more of the. I guess kind of sports world talk about this because these typically are the guys and gals who uh, see this first as a referral. And then if they end up doing arthroplasty in their practice, they may take care of it, but then may send it over to their arthroplasty colleagues. But S-P-O-N-K or SPONK is uh, short for spontaneous osteonecrosis of the knee where the medial femoral condyle is the most commonly affected uh, portion of the knee. And kind of the, the symptoms that these patients will complain of is uh, sudden onset knee pain uh, without trauma. You'll see a crescent sign on x-ray. They may have a uh, recent history of um, like corticosteroid use if they were trying to get over an infection and their primary care provider put them on maybe one or two courses of steroids or um, maybe have another autoimmune issue where they're on uh, long-term steroids. So uh, also it's kind of looking for those sort of things in the patient history. And then um, the treatment for them is when you, when you see their x-rays, if they don't have any collapse of the subchondral bone, uh, you can consider non-operative therapy. Uh, you can also, depending on uh, an MRI, which is most likely the kind of next step after the x-ray and 
to prove your suspicions of spontaneous osteonecrosis. Um, you can consider arthroscopy and uh, even consider an osteotomy if they do have an uh, abnormal limb alignment to help relieve some of that pressure off of that medial femoral condyle and help them uh, kind of spontaneously recover from their spontaneous osteonecrosis, uh, you can consider an osteotomy. But if they do have collapse, then you are uh, kind of forced to look at more of a uh, unicondylar or a total knee arthroplasty, depending on how much arthritis they have in the knee. Like we talked about with the uh, knee, if they have unicompartmental arthritis where that sponk is, then you can consider a unicondylar knee. If they have more than two compartments uh, affected, then you're pushed more towards a, a total knee arthroplasty. And um, the downside to this, unfortunately, is that uh, if you do a total knee arthroplasty for sponk, like if that, if that is your primary indication for it, they tend to have inferior outcomes than total knee arthroplasty done primarily for arthritis. And I'm, I don't really know the exact reason for this, but it's most likely related to the fact that total knee arthroplasty for arthritis um, is much more of a long-term chronic issue with global knee uh, symptoms and global knee uh, kind of uh, uh, treatment is needed for that. Whereas osteonecrosis of the condyle, where it's not affecting the other regions of the knee is, is uh, you don't necessarily have to do a total knee for it. So it's probably why their outcomes are inferior, but I don't I don't know the exact answer for it, but they will ask on the OIT, um, uh, like in comparison for a total knee yeah. for arthritis, this patient would have, uh, or would be expected to have a superior outcomes, B inferior outcomes, C the same or D like higher infection rates or something like that. But it's, it's just inferior outcomes and, uh, kind of moving on. What is seconk or S-E-C-O-N-K? Yeah, I mean, a lot of similarities to what you were just talking about. This is just secondary osteonecrosis uh, of the knee. And I mean, that could be due to a, a number of, of different factors, you know, like we do the sickle cell disease, myeloproliferative disorders, um, Gaucher's disease, and, you know, some indirect causes like alcohol or obesity or corticosteroid use. And this kind of has, some similar symptoms as spunk, but this is kind of just gradual onset of knee pain. And on x-rays, you may see that that crescent sign this commonly affects the lateral uh, femoral condyle. And the treatment algorithm is uh, almost pretty much the same for that it was for spunk. So if there's not much uh, collapse, you know, that's one of the things to look at is the collapse of the subchondral bone. If there's no collapse, sometimes you can treat this non-operatively. Um, you can also treat this with a core decompression as well as arthroscopy. And, but when you have collapse of that um, subchondral bone and, and that condyle, you know, you're looking at a, you know, probably a, a, some type of arthroplasty of some sort. You know, if it's just one compartment, it may be any compartmental, or if it's the whole thing, it may be um, total arthroplasty. And the same thing as in Spunk versus versus longstanding arthritis with total knee arthroplasties. Total knee arthroplasty are associated with you know more inferior outcomes um, for total knee arthro for for sec than for arthritis. So 
who get that on the on the test and you know they they put it up there and they say what's you know what is associated um with total neuroplasty and you know the diagnosis of second you'll say it has inferior outcomes uh with total neuroplasty than for arthritis and kind of the, the last onk of these different onks uh what is pa onk i don't know if they say punk but what is pa onk <laughs> yeah so that is uh, stands for uh, post arthroscopy osteonecrosis of the knee so the pa is post arthro uh, arthroscopy and um can be idiopathic i.e due to us as surgeons, uh, atraumatic and possibly associated with uh, steroid use. Um, it's typically seen after an arthroscopy, sudden onset of knee pain, similar treatment options as uh, the ones that we talked about above. And um, for whatever reason, all of these osteonecrosis of the knees is uh, much more common in females uh, over the age of 55 than males, typically on an order of three to one. So uh, for uh, these sort of questions, I mean, it's unlikely they're going to ask who does it affect more, males, females, or both are the same. It's it's just good to look out for. Um, if you know that it affects females more, well, the test writers um, also know that fact. And they will be more inclined to talk about a 60-year-old female walks into your office and complains of these symptoms. Like they're not yeah. going to try and trip you up by saying, oh, a 35-year-old male, because that they have to paint a, a realistic picture for you. And if it's realistic for a 60-year-old female who is three times more likely to get this than a male, then they they'll probably present it as such. So so be on the lookout for kind of the age and the male and female characteristics when you're trying to develop a, a differential in your head. And that may help you kind of move forward with answering some of these questions. This episode is sponsored by the American Academy of Orthopedic Surgeons. If you're an orthopedic resident, it's time to start building the foundation to be prepared for the OITE and ABOS part one exam. The American Academy of Orthopedic Surgeons has partnered with leaders in the field to bring you the Resident Orthopedic Core Knowledge Program. Rock is an all-in-one online learning platform covering 11 subspecialties. You can access the content for free at rock.aaos.org. This platform delivers a comprehensive, structured, standardized curriculum and even includes self-assessment quizzes and performance analytics. And remember, residents never pay to access Rock content. Get started today at rock.aaos.org. Yeah, but uh, I think I think that finishes it up for the knee. Oh yeah, and uh, wow. so now we can kind of move on to uh, the hip. So we'll talk about a little bit of just hip pathology and then ways to treat it. So I'll get started. Um, what are some of the common hip pain symptoms and then their associated hip pathology. Yeah. So this is like, you know, like kind of like the buzzwords, um, I guess you could say of the hip, like when we talked about, um, like when we talked about, I guess, shoulder, I guess you could say, for example, when it's a young person complaining of like 
shoulder instability that's a picture you're thinking more of a labral tear versus like you know something of a, a different thing so this is kind of the similar things with the hip so when you're thinking more of groin pain you're thinking uh more of hip arthritis is higher on your differential now obviously it could be due to multiple different things um it could be an impingement it can be a lot of things but you know hip arthritis should be higher on your on your differential uh when patients complain of or when they show the c sign and what the c sign is is when you're asking them where their pain is and they cup their hand around their hip and there's in 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 it looks like a C really. And they're like, it just hurts just right here. Um, it makes sense if you, if you Google just like C sign of the hip and you'll see where the patients put their hand right on their hip. And that's kind of one of the telltale signs that patients may have a labral tear. Um, and I don't know if that'll necessarily be tested, but that may be just something to note about when you're seeing patients. Uh, another thing is patients that come in with lateral hip pain. And one of the things you need to think about is trochanteric bursitis or something going on with the abductor muscles. So you could have abductor muscle tendonitis as well as dysfunction, which I actually just saw my first hip arthroscopic gluteus medius repair. Um, so these things do happen. Um, I saw that probably first one a couple of weeks ago. Um, but you know, just the same thing with the shoulder, when you're getting a history with the hip, you need to be a little bit specific about okay, exactly where is the pain. So you're thinking lateral hip pain, trochanteric bursitis, or abductor muscle tendonitis or dysfunction. When you're thinking, uh, or when they say they have pain in their buttocks that has radiating symptoms down their leg in a dermatomal fashion, because sometimes it can be hard to differentiate the hip versus the spine. You're thinking spine pathology. If you go back and listen to some of our spine lectures, again, that radiating symptoms down the leg in a dermatomal fashion may clue you in towards spine. And when they also, when patients complain of thigh or buttock pain that uh, is worse with activity that is relieved by rest, that is one of the telltale signs for like claudication, or you may have some type of atherosclerosis of the iliac artery. Um, so those are just kind of some buzzwords for hip pathology and different things that you need to at least just have on your differential diagnosis. And I remember coming in as an intern uh, or hearing, I think I heard about this term before I was an intern, but an antalgic gait. Uh, what exactly is an antalgic gait? You know, we see it on the notes all the time, like patient walks with antalgic gait, but what does that actually mean? Uh, yeah, it's actually, I guess, a good question. It's maybe not OITE relevant, but it's residency relevant because, yeah, just like you said, you'll you'll hear people say it, but you don't know exactly why they say it. So when somebody has an antalgic gait, uh, they're going to have a shortened stance phase on the affected leg. And I can't remember which of a, of the podcast we talked about the, the phases of gait on, but oh, the yeah. stance phase is, is what you would think it is. It's where they are standing with their full body weight on one leg while the uh, opposite leg is finished with the previous step and is now swinging through forward to initiate the next step. So if they have a uh, shortened period and just for making it uh, make sense, let's say uh, the their normal gait is two seconds per one step. So on their non-affected side, they're going to have they're going to stand on that side for two seconds while their other leg passes through and swings through from uh, behind them uh, forward. Then on their affected side or their painful side, 
they're going to just be on that side for one second because it hurts more. Just like if you had a rock in your shoe, you're not going to stand on that foot for a long time. You're going to quickly transition to the other side. So the shorter phase is the uh, affected side. The longer phase is the non-affected side. And then uh, you may also hear uh, somebody talk about a, oh yeah, that patient uh, has a Trendelenburg style gate. What, what's a good description of the Trendelenburg gate? Yeah. So the Trendelenburg gate, you know, you see this in patients that have weakness or, you know, some pathology of their abductors, like their gluteus medius or minimus. And what they do because their adductors are weak, abductors are weak. They, um, they lean like their, their trunk will lean towards the affected side. Um, you know, and you'll have a contralateral hemipelvis drop because you're not able to fire and, and level the pelvis off with your uh, with those abductors. So in the Trendelenburg gait, the patient is going to lean towards the effective hip. So if the left hip, you have left gluteus medius that is, uh, that is weak, you'll see them leaning towards the left side and... Uh, I mean, yeah, I mean, that's pretty much the, <laughs> the Trendelenburg gate. Um, and, and kind of a little switching gears a little bit, what are some conditions that may lead to hip arthritis? Like, you know, there's a lot of patients that we do a bunch of total total hips on, but what are some things that may lead to hip arthritis? Uh, the one that uh, you'll see the most is just kind of uh, standard hip arthritis in um, either laborers or people who have just put a lot of uh, kind of miles in quotes through their hips and it's just kind of wear and tear. Uh, but then you'll also see like uh, post-traumatic arthritis in patients who have either had a prior hip dislocation, um, a prior labral tear, a prior acetabular fracture. Um, so you have that type. And then uh, femoral acetabular impingement or FAI, which um, we know, I believe from our sports lectures, uh, that there's the cam type and the pincer type where the cam type is the, um, kind of larger diameter, uh, anterior femoral neck, uh, type of lesion, whereas the pincer is the overly concentric acetabular side. And most patients have a combination of both. Uh, just for kind of re-review of that. And then acetabular dysplasia. So if they had uh, either a prior had like developmental hip dysplasia, or if it was a kind of a mild dysplasia that was either never picked up when, the, when they were infants or was never severe enough to cause a positive Ortolani or Barlow's test. And so was never fully worked up. And now they're in their 30s, 40s, 50s having issues with a slight acetabular dysplasia. Um, but uh, like I said, most have uh, just kind of a, a mix of, of several with the acetabular dysplasia, maybe also causing like a, a labral tear or uh, post-traumatic with a labral tear or something like that, that leads to uh, hip arthritis. And so I, I talked briefly about developmental uh, dysplasia of the hip, but what are some of the acetabular changes you see with DDH? 
Yeah, so, you know, when you look at these x-rays, you look at AP of a hip, or really AP of a pelvis, because um, you can compare it with the other side, you notice that there's poor coverage of the femoral head. Um, the actual center of rotation of the hip will be a little bit more lateral, because, again, there's there's not good lateral coverage of the femoral head from that acetabulum. And you can also have a decrease in the acetabular depth, or they'll have a shallow hip socket. And, and what this does... This actually causes stress at the superior lateral rim, which leads to labral tears, which can lead to femoral head subluxation. And actually, this week I saw my first open um, acetabuloplasty and femoroplasty for a you know for a patient that had a, a pretty big pincer lesion as well as a cam lesion and some dysplasia. And like you open it up and you look and you can really see like all the cartilage is damaged there um, at the superior lateral rim and. Uh, and then there's a, a label tear that's, you know, mobile and not stable that you can move around and fix. Um, so these things are in the books, but they're actually real. Um, then these patients can also have different amounts of antiversion. So they may have increased antiversion. They may not have increased antiversion. Um, but these are just some of the acetabular changes that you'll see in uh, developmental dysplasia of the hip. Again, it's going to be poor coverage of the femoral head. Um, you get lateralization of the hip center. You have a decrease in the acetabular depth and a shallow hip socket as well as possibly increased antiversion. Now that was on the acetabular side of things. What about the femoral side of things? What femoral changes can be seen in DDH? Uh, yeah, so because it, uh, DDH is more of a developmental type of dysplasia, um, if the socket abnormally develops, then it's most likely that the femoral side will also develop abnormally because it doesn't have a concentric socket to fit in. So you can see femoral head and neck changes, uh, a valgus neck slash uh, shaft angle, which... <clears throat> Uh, for those who are kind of like, wait, what, how would you have a valgus neck shaft angle? Think of it as a, uh, like a more vertically oriented femoral neck compared to the shaft. So if the AP pelvis and you're looking at the, uh, at the proximal femurs, um, you'll see a more of a kind of vertically oriented, uh, head, neck and shaft rather than the standard kind of 130 135 degree angle. Um, you can also get decreased offset because of that more vertical uh, neck and valgus neck shaft angle. And then it's plus or minus, but you you may see an increased anaversion, uh, but it's unlikely that you'll see increased retroversion. So they might be neutral or more anaverted, but it's unlikely that they're going to sit there with a much more retroverted uh, neck. Thank you all for listening to this episode. Hope you all learned a lot. And uh, let's go ahead and um, hop into the next one. Just keep on, keep on listening.